Arthur Penn on the critical beating Bonnie and Clyde took before being recognized as an American classic. William Freakin on why he rates his box office bomb Sorcerer above The Exorcist and The French Connection. Italian great Bernardo Bertolucci of Last Tango in Paris fame on how critics misunderstood his incest melodrama Luna. I'm Lloyd Sachs, reviving my old Sachs and the Cinema segment on Chicago Radio to present a series of rare, intimate, never-before-heard conversations with great filmmakers. In these chats, recorded on my cassette recorder back in the 80s, you'll also hear Halloween creator John Carpenter on what it was like to be called a pornographer of violence, Monty Python alumnus Terry Gilliam on going rogue to get his version of Brazil shown in America, and French auteur Bertrand Tavernier on the French art of stealing from American classics. Plus, you'll hear Bill Forsyth on putting Scottish cinema on the map, and in a rare one-on-one interview, British legend Michael Powell on dealing with a studio that just didn't get The Red Shoes, his magnificent study of artistic obsession. You won't want to miss any of these wide-ranging, completely unscripted interviews in which eight great directors share personal truths and the secrets of their success. We conclude our series with Bill Forsyth. When he came to Chicago in 1981 to promote Gregory's Girl, there was no Scottish cinema to speak of. But with that marvelously cockeyed coming-of-age comedy, as one critic described it, Glasgow became a popular destination point for moviegoers. The success of Forsyth Scottish films, including Local Hero and Comfort and Joy, earned him a ticket to Hollywood, putting him on the cusp of a major career. To say things didn't work out there would be a major understatement, He got some strong reviews for housekeeping, his adaptation of the Pulitzer-nominated Marilyn Robinson novel, and Breaking In, a safecracker comedy starring Burt Reynolds. But neither film was a commercial success, and then came Being Human, a ponderous journey into the cosmos starring Robin Williams that was universally panned. The box office bomb ended Forsyth's stint in La La Land, and for all intents and purposes, his career as a director. The only film he has directed since then was a so-so 1999 sequel to Gregory's Girl. The movie world has rarely suffered a worse case of you just never know. In our chat, the likable Forsyth Scottish brogue ablazon talks about how he went from school dropout to fledgling filmmaker, the lessons he learned from the French New Wave, the influence of British great Michael Powell, my guest on a previous podcast. He starts off talking about how keen he was to see whether Gregory's Girl would appeal to American moviegoers. Yeah, I was actually, I was interested more than nervous just to see what it would do in, in America, you know. 
And it's quite gratifying that it's, it's, it's people are, uh, you know, taken to it and understanding it. I think it, it's actually kind of reinforced, you know, on something that I was beginning to feel, and that is that, you know, a filmmaker should really stay where he is and try and make films from where you are, you know, rather mm. than travel to some kind of amorphous centre of things and make films from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, people say that it's provincial and all that, but I think a film's really got to be provincial to mean anything, you know. Well, that's so much part of the charm of the, yeah. this film. And, I mean, if a film isn't provincial, then by definition that means it doesn't come from anywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't come from anywhere, it, you know, it doesn't mean anything, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, what is the current state of the uh, film industry in, in Scotland? I know England is starting to pick up a little bit with uh, a few yeah. hits. You know, Chariots of Fire, I'm sure, did a lot of yeah. good for the whole thing. There. yeah. Well, Scotland really doesn't have an industry beyond what um, what Britain has. It's pretty yeah. well. It's pretty well uh-huh. the same. And apart from Gregory Scotland, the other film that I did before that, there really was no feature industry at all in Scotland. Mm-hmm. No feature film work at all. Um, not all that much work actually. Even people visiting Scotland making films, it wasn't even tremendously well used as a location. You know, just a few odd things coming in. Um, up until then, it had been a place where if you st- if you worked on films and if you stayed in Scotland, then you made uh, industrial films or sponsored films, you know. And that's what I did for a long, long while until I decided to change, really. Mm-hmm. Well, did Gregory's Girl take the kind of film festival exposure route? I mean, is that where you first started showing it and um, attracted attention that way? It happened, it happened quite quickly because what the film that I made before had really paved the way a little yeah. bit, you know. And that had got quite a lot of exposure at festivals, and it really enabled me to find the money to make Gregory's Call. Because I made that other one without any money, really. Made it on 16 mil, you know. Um, and that really opened opened up the way to get the money for Gregory's Call. So once Gregory's Call was finished, we just ran it at the London Festival, and it was picked up uh, for distribution from there. Uh-huh. Um, but the critics were all... They, they were kind of very nice to it, and they were looking out for it because they... In a nice way, they had felt responsible for um, Gregory's Girl getting together at all because they had been so nice to the other film. And so, you know, they played their part in it. And so it made, it made it to, it, I got quite a lot of good, you know, reviews and things on the strength of that. Mm-hmm. But they were all looking out for it really before it was finished, you know. No, that's quite great. Nice. Most of them said it wasn't as good as the first one. But, oh, it was, of course. but it was still all right. It was still okay. But yeah, it wasn't as, right. Well, that takes and, away. I mean, it diminishes their power the more you get them out there. It was like they discovered the first one, and now you know. Yeah, and so yeah. it felt a bit shaky to be on the way, and after only one film to be sliding. You know, <laughs> it, it kind of worried me. You know, and I, I, I thought so myself. Actually, I, I kind of believed them. You know. Yeah. Well, do you see it as fitting into? I mean, some people are immediately fitting it into that kind of. Um, um, genre of adolescent pictures like you know, some of Truffaut's films and uh, yeah. you know mm-hmm. uh, and I guess in certain ways it does comfortably you know, yeah. reflect some of that stuff but yeah. uh, it didn't really feel I didn't set out to make a, a kids movie then I mean uh, there were very expedient reasons why I'm, I, I mean I, to my mind I was cheating on the kids when I was making the film because I thought I was making an adult film and I was just for cheapness and for other reasons, I was using kids to play adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, as it turned out, that that actually became part of the statement of the film. I think that what adolescents get, get, get what, what happens to people when they're going through adolescence really is just a kind of normal 
it's a kind of terminal state really you just become an adolescent and that's you forever you know mm. um, you don't really progress much beyond that but um, for me it was it was quite a calculated thing to, to begin making the film and to be working with the kids at the youth theatre where I found the kids um, because I just wanted to work with actors and it seemed the only way to do it really because in Scotland there was no I didn't have any background in the theatre and there was no way that I would get to work in the theatre and that really wasn't very interesting in the theatre so apart from leaving the country and starting from scratch somewhere else I just had to find a way of working with actors and on, on, you know, on my own and the idea of working with kids seemed like a good one you know mm-hmm. yeah. so I went along to the youth theatre one Friday night and sat around and got to know the kids and spent about two years there before we actually found the money to make the film well, they certainly came through for you. Just, yeah, uh, really, much better than most uh, kids actor acting. It was, it was. I think because of the length of time it took to find the money for it. By that time, they were so comfortable in, in the in the roles and in the film and the situations, you know. Uh, and I had got such a lot from them that I felt quite comfortable with them too. Uh, so I think that was a big help. You know, it didn't seem like a help at the time, but I think just the sheer period of time that it took to do it was was actually worthwhile, you know. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, what is it, I mean, being working in an area where there isn't a whole lot of uh, what you could call, uh, um, you know, community, the film community, whatever, yeah. I mean, you're pretty much out there on your own making a film, I mean, is that, I mean, would you rather be in a place where you could, for instance, go to somewhere and talk to other people who are also doing the same kind of thing? Not really, because, um, I mean, uh, there are other filmmakers in Scotland, and you know, who were like myself, or industrial filmmakers. And uh, the thing is, we never used to talk to each other anyway. Because filmmakers mm. are really kind of jealous bunch of people, I think. Mm. And I don't think many directors actually get a chance to talk to other directors. It's one of these. It's a very lonely occupation, you know. And for a long while, I mean, I didn't really know what, what other. Any time I met an actor, you know, say I was interviewing an actor, I would ask him if he'd done something, say with. Altman or something, I would say, what, what does he do? You know, what does he actually do when, he, when he's making a film? Because you don't know, because you never see other directors working. Mm-hmm. So you actually don't know how they how they operate. Um, but the nearest I got to being in a community of filmmakers was uh, when I took, um, it wasn't Gregory's School, it was the other film, I took it over to a festival in Rotterdam in Holland, and there was lots of filmmakers there. I just missed Goddard by a day, he came in later on, but there was a lot of independent, quite, quite a few American filmmakers there and a few people whose names I recognise from European filmmakers and um, I thought this is good, we're all you know, together and talk to other filmmakers and they had this dinner for us and we all sat around and, and all we talked about was the price of Kodak stock and how much is it, if you're processing a film in New York, how much is it a foot and where do you get your CRIs done and all that and it was all that kind of talk. No, I guess it's always like We never, uh, we, we didn't talk about anything kind of beyond that yeah. and that was kind of nice really, that kind of reassured me. So I didn't really feel lonely in that sense, you know. Mm-hmm. And all, all the technicians who worked in the film were people that I'd worked with for years, you know. The cameraman was someone who, he started work on the company that I used to run when I made sponsored films, you know. He started there when he left school, so I'd, he'd kind of grown up in the same business as I had, you know. The editor, the same, he'd worked on a lot of sh- shorts that I'd made, so there was quite a lot of people round about, you know. Yeah. What, what really 
is most winning to me. I mean, aside, I mean, even without what I'm going to refer to, is that the film itself, the narrative and everything, really is, is very charming and real sweet-tempered film. But it's like the touches that you have on the edges, you know, the uh, kind of little quirks with the penguin walking down the mm -hmm. hall. But I mean, even less noticeable things like that. There's one scene you shot where. There's some kid hanging in a tree that, yeah. that just, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that might otherwise not be noticed. I don't know. But, I mean, we're, you know, I don't know. Is, is that pretty much your sensibility, that kind of... Uh, I think it's just, a, yeah, I just like to pack things into the scenes, you know, because I'm always scared that the scene on its own really isn't enough, you know. I suppose it's an insecurity, really, that makes me do that. That I just, I, I, you know, always get worried that the scene as it's written or as it's played isn't really enough, and that mm -hmm. it will seem, it will seem kind of lacking in kind of dimensions, you know. So I always tend to try and find something else to be happening as well, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think it probably is an insecurity. Um, but all, but I, the things that actually end up in the film are usually not things that are invented, but things that are kind of observed. Like I did see a kid in the new town when I was looking for shots, you know, when I was just driving around before we filmed and. I saw a kid up a tree and the kid, the joke was the kid was, you know, like the same age as the tree, you know, it was a little sapling. And from the from a distance, I thought, how the hell could that kid get up this thing? Because the sapling was kind of waving like this. And what had happened was the kid, that there was a post which was holding the sapling up and the kid had climbed that. So he looked as if he was sitting on top of this tree that couldn't support uh -huh. him, you know? Uh -huh. So... So that ended up, that's the shot you were talking about, that ended up in the film. Although we pan over it so quickly you don't really notice that there's a post on it. And same with the penguin, you know, I just, I was looking at some schools and it, when I was back in that school situation, it just reminded me of how weird schools are, you know. There's always something odd happening in the corridor, you know. Some kid carrying a strange object from the art class or something. School corridors are really quite surreal places, I think, you know. Yeah, well, and also the, t the uh, I don't know what the term is, the headmaster or whatever, uh, yeah. with the uh, piano playing and the, uh, the donuts, uh, terrific touches. Is this, uh, as, as much of this born out of personal experience, as all, uh, which is, I guess, a, a less uh, obvious way of asking, I mean, how autobiographical is this thing? Is it? I think it's... Um not in the sense of going back into any kind of remembrances, you know. I mean, all the situations in the film, you know, as I was writing them and thinking about them, they seemed quite real to me, as if, I mean, they could happen to me, like, today or tomorrow, like, these situations. It wasn't as if I thought they were somewhere, you know, behind me. And I think that kind of reinforces the, the fact that it really is an adult movie, just kind of masquerading as a kid's movie, I think. Yeah. I feel that, I feel that quite strongly. Um... The sense that adults, I mean, the adult behavior is uh, is no more uh, uh, normal or stable yeah. or, anything, or anything else. It's no more and rational than what, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, but uh, the whole family relationship, uh, you only see the father once. You never do see the mother. Mm -hmm. uh, you do see the sister as just uh, very, to me, unique, and but yet perfectly believable uh, kind of family setup they had Bro close brother and sister yeah uh -huh. some people said that they felt that it was a bit unreal not having more parents but I think at that certain age you know your, your parents are so self-occupied that your your parents do recede into the kind of background of things you know so I think 
it was an attempt just to get that real focus that the kids of that age have on things, you know. Mm. They're so self-concerned, really, that their parents are minor characters in their life at that stage, you know. Yeah. Well, can you briefly describe your... Uh, you grew up in... Uh, in where? In Glasgow, uh, yeah. In Glasgow. Born and raised in Glasgow, yeah. Uh, well, and uh, what, was it, you know, what was that like, and how did you end up getting making films? Well, it, um, it was quite a kind of uneventful upbringing. I don't really remember a lot about it. I didn't enjoy school very much. I remember that. I didn't like school because I wasn't a, a limelighter, if that term means anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I wasn't in any of the sports teams and I wasn't the kind of head of any kind of school projects or anything like that. So, uh, And so school just had kind of washed over me in a sense. And uh, I left school when I was 17 and... Um, really when I've got into the film business uh, just by uh, there was a job in a newspaper you know for a local film company once lad required you know um, a kind of apprentice thing and it was a little industrial film company one man actually and among other jobs I was applying for other jobs at the time you know insurance companies and things like that it seemed like quite an interesting thing although I didn't really have any kind of strong commitment to want to make films but I thought it would be interesting you know and I thought there might be money in it, actually, to tell you the truth. So so I took this job with this film company and gradually, over a year or two, I actually became quite interested in making films and began to watch films in a more serious way, you know. Before that, I hadn't really... I'd gone to the cinema very casually, you know. Um, but then within two or three years, I was really quite committed to the idea of, you know, being a filmmaker. Started to watch a lot of films. That was, like, the mid-60s, mm-hmm. late, early 70s, and... By that time, a lot of the French you know, Nouvelle Vague films were coming over to Glasgow. We were getting them maybe two or three years after they were they were made. So I was getting things like uh, you know, Le Fou Folle, you know, and uh, the early Truffaut films. They were playing for a week or two at the, at the film theatre in Glasgow and, and Godard stuff. Um, so all of Godard's films in Glasgow at that same time. So that was where I really kind of got into gear really in terms mm-hmm. of being a filmmaker you know and wanting to do it mm-hmm. so the the new wave then was at least an early influence in terms of yeah. how you saw things and, yeah. yeah it just um, I mean these were the first films I saw that you know you watched I mean up, up until then I mean I was so uneducated in terms of cinema that I mean going to a film was just a sheer um, um, diversion, you know, but to actually sit down and watch a film and be, <clears throat> be able to think about it and be engaged by it and be entertained by it, but also be able to talk about it and think about it afterwards—that was mm. something new. And uh, it just seemed like a really nice thing to be able to do, you know. Yeah, well, it just seems that British filmmakers for so long were really tied to that kind of uh, uh, kitchen sink realism, you know. Yeah. And, uh, I think there's something, for a long time, well, I think it was Truffaut that said it, there was something, the term English, and f- the term English filmmaker doesn't mean anything. There's something, the words are fighting against each mm. other, you know? And I think, it, I think he was right. I don't know whether he's still right, but he certainly was right then. There was um, this terrible, just getting caught up in kind of a literal way of thinking, you know? I actually think it's probably quite helpful being, a, being illiterate if you're a filmmaker. 
uh, and I think in, in some measure I am, and you know, and I still feel that I'm kind of half educated, you know, because I was very lazy as a kid, and I think that's probably not a bad thing to be as a filmmaker. Hmm. Just to be able to uh, go with your instincts more yes, than what. Yes, and, uh, and, and to and to be able to, to to try and present things in a simple way, you know, uh, and not in a very literal way. It's almost a childlike activity, really, at the end of the day, making a film. Yeah. Well, um... And that was definitely the trouble. It's still the trouble with a lot of English filmmaking. They just take it much too seriously. And they get so self-conscious about their own kind of, you know, importance as intellectuals and as, as entertainers, you know? Yeah, by the whole... I just wonder what effect the success of Chariots of Fire will have. I mean, a movie I'm not particularly fond of, but uh, yeah. Well, I remember when I got the um, the last winter, I got the the British Academy uh, Screenwriting Award, you know, and the, the things in competition were uh, things like Chariots of Fire. The guy who wrote that was up for an award. And, the guy who adapted, uh, Harold Pinter, who adapted uh, The French Lieutenant's Woman was up for an award. Mm -hmm. And I forget who else, it was about four or five no nominated films. And when I got it, all these other guys were really disgusted, you know? <laughs> they really were. I imagine. Well, that's um, great. Uh, because I just wasn't a writer, because I hadn't written a book, or, you know? Because I hadn't gone to university or something, you know? Because I hadn't written, you know, 25 TV plays. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't a writer, you yeah. know? Well, I always loved uh, the films of one of my the films of Michael Powell. Have you oh, seen Oh yeah, them? wonderful. Just, uh, I've just I've just finished a film that I hope to be allowed to dedicate to him actually. Him really? and Pressburger, yeah. I talked to the producer and I asked him if if we could dedicate. If it turns out, I don't, I've only seen the rough cuts. I don't know if it's going to work out, but if it works out okay, I would, I'm going to dedicate it to him. Well, do you have to? I mean, you have to have that approved. No, it's just if the film turns out. If the film, if I don't think the film's any oh, good, then oh, I won't. Oh yeah. What was uh, that film about? Is that? Uh, I think it's it, it's it's been working under the influence of Paul and Pressburger a teeny bit, but it's um it's about uh, it's called Local Hero and it's about um it's about an American who finds himself in Scotland. He's an American businessman. He's doing some deals and he ends up in Scotland and his one or two things um oh, affect his outlook. Well, how does it feel? Uh, uh, is this your first uh, time over here? Um, um, well, to deal with all this publicity and uh, I've been broken in quite gently because um, <clears throat> over the last six months I've been over three or four times to the states and did some interviews earlier on. But uh, I came over in April. We did a couple of weeks filming in Houston for this film that we've just finished. We did two weeks filming there. The, mm. the film begins and ends in Houston, oh. and the rest of it happens in Scotland. So I've been kind of pretty well broken into. I, got, I suppose I've got a very uh, eccentric impression of America. It's all kind of hotels and airports and <laughs> things like that. And Houston, which is uh, one of the booming cities in many yeah. ways, most fastest, of them bad, I guess. I don't fastest know. growing town in uh, in the world. Well. Can you tell me how that how Houston is involved? And this is a film you're talking about before. Um, uh, yeah. Well, it just be, the movie begins there, the, and the plot is kind of unwound there. The you know the idea of this businessman going to Scotland, and 
I suppose there's a kind of Brigadoon element in it as well, the idea of and I met a couple of Americans in Scotland, you know, experiencing a different way of life and with little kind of magical tinges, you know. Simple, very simple things. There's nothing, there's nothing um, supernatural about it, but just the idea of someone who, for instance, hasn't hasn't looked up at the stars before, you know, suddenly find himself on a beach with with the night sky above him and how that affects him, little things like that. Did you ever expect the film to I mean, attract attention here, let, let alone open in America? I mean, was that ever, you know? I, I didn't honestly imagine it. I didn't, I didn't imagine it. I thought, strangely enough, I thought that it would maybe do something in France, which it hasn't done. It hasn't even got a sale in France yet, as far as I know. Um, but, I mean, I suppose I was so naive that I thought if it did well in Scotland, it would probably do as much as I expected of it. I just, I just really wanted everyone in Scotland to see it. I think mm -hmm. when I started out, because um, I thought, well, there's five million people there, so I suppose they all sure. pay a quid each. You know, that's five million pounds. You know. <laughs> oh, are you like a local uh, <laughs> cause celeb, whatever the term is? I mean, are you? Uh well, maybe that local pride, whatever, and you know. maybe now, but it took a long while because actually we we went to the trouble of having the premiere in, in Glasgow before London, and the uh, it only ran for three weeks in Glasgow before the uh, hmm. then it opened in London and then it built up and then it came back to Glasgow and it's been playing there for a year now, you know. But they needed to the little rubber stamp from London first, you know. But I don't blame, I mean, you can't blame the audience for that because there wasn't such a thing as a Scottish film before that, so obviously they had nothing to, to go on. Well, what would be the closest thing to a, a predecessor? Um, difficult to say. I mean, mm. quite, you know, a few films have shot in Scotland, but um, there was nothing really indigenous before. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's right, the... I mean, the whole crew was Scottish. Yeah. Um, so this was an all Scottish. Yeah, with a Scottish director and stuff like that. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think any film has ever been made in Scotland, even on location, with a like with a Scottish director or a Scottish story, hundred percent. You know. Tell me, tell me more about um, how you view Gregory's Girl as an adult film. Um, the. I mean, there's a certain buoyancy that. That probably, I guess, suggests a, a, what? What would you call it? An unadult film? I don't know uh -huh. what the term would be. Um, in terms of sense of wonder, sense of newness, sense of imagination, yeah. all those things, you know. Um, but I guess you're talking really a, a kind of a subtext I of think about seriousness. The, about the situations, about about the basic situations. You know, they're, they're quite adult situations. Like, I mean, you never really stop wondering what other people think of you, for instance, and I think that's really what Gregory's trying to work out mostly, is how the world sees him, you know? He's always trying to work out, you know, like before, when he goes into a room, he's wor wor wondering about what kind of impression he makes as he goes into a classroom or whatever. Mm -hmm. And obviously he's got quite a well-developed fantasy life, you know, he's sitting playing the drums, he probably imagines himself in some rock band or other, you know? And just in the general, in the way that whatever I think it's a it's a, a human thing, an adult thing, whatever you want to call it. That 
whatever you're good at or whatever is going for you is the thing that you're not really aware of that you're least aware of you know mm -hmm. and I think he's very much like that because he he feels that he's got the right to complain about life and falling in love and all that and in fact that's the only problem he's got because round about him there are all these people supporting him and all these other lives are really geared to helping his life like his little sister who's 100% supportive you know his parents who, who don't matter how far in the background they are they're kind of supporting him in terms of giving him a roof over his head and and all these girls at the end who are actually um, even Dorothy is helping him to get the right girl in the end you know so and he's completely blissfully unaware of you know the support that's all around him hmm. I think that's quite a kind of common thing in life you think so? yeah I think you never really know I mean, you're the last person to know what's really going on, you know, in terms of your own life. Mm -hmm. I just, uh, I, I never have had the feeling I've lived in such a benign uh, community. I mean, I always have probably more negative things to say about where I live than positive in terms of people surrounding me. But yeah. uh, well, but he, but he, he has as well. I mean, he's completely unaware of all these, all the support he's yeah. getting. I mean, he, he thinks life is a miserable thing, you know. He can, he's prepared to kind of be at the moon and complain and you know I just get the sense that you're, the films that follow are going to be less conventional I mean in terms of less you know what I'm saying when I say conventional I don't mean uh, in the sense of predictable but in the sense of yeah. in terms of narrative in terms of uh, just the way we approach things I mean is this will this follow do you think I think I can sense that happening in myself yeah uh, even in this one we just finished uh, there's not there's very little story in it you know and maybe it's just because it's a rough cut it's um, it's it's a comedy but the humour is actually quite quite odd you know um, I think I don't know if it's gone too far along the road and it's not humour anymore but you know I think humour is something that um, if you pursue it to its logical kind of end it isn't funny anymore you know and so kind of when you're making humor you, well you either choose to kind of walk the tightrope really or, or or kind of draw back from the edge you know that you're that you're working on and i just don't know where the humor in this one lies but i, I think you know i suspect that hmm. whatever whatever i'm working on you know if i think of something then i'll try and think of it upside down or something just mm. to see what it looks like see if it's any more real the other way around you know mm -hmm. and um, sometimes it is most times it's more interesting you've been listening to a conversation with bill forsyth the man who puts scottish cinema on the map of world cinema thanks to rick riggs and handwritten recording studio for the production work and jeff bradfield for the music be sure to listen to all the interviews in our podcast, including talks with John Carpenter, William Freakin, and Bernardo Bertolucci. I'm Lloyd Sachs. Thanks for joining me.